Welcome to the Hanging Banners Podcast with your host, Tyler Witt. Jack Coachman. And here he is, having the time of his life. And Ryan Sartori. Maybe short, but he's thick. <laughs> that's, that's thick with two C's. And welcome to episode one of the Hanging Banners podcast with your hosts, me, Ryan Sartori, and my astute members of the podcast as well, Jack Coachman, Tyler Witt. Gentlemen, we've got our pilot behind us. We've got trials and tribulations behind us, and we're ready for episode one. Well, we might have trials and tribulations ahead, too. I mean, that's part of doing a, a live recording is you have no idea what's going to happen next. Yeah, I mean, that's that's yeah. <laughs> Don't get comfy. We, uh, we we've been trying to set up this here stream, uh, what we're doing right now for 15, 20 minutes, just Everybody's had at least one problem or another, but we're here and that's what matters. And we're ready to rock out. And uh, I want to start the podcast off this way. Maybe everybody can get a good laugh. I'm kind of self-deprecating in that way. But um, NFL week one is behind us. Everybody has hope and optimism for their fantasy teams. Gentlemen, I lost my fantasy matchup this week by 100 points. I'm in a similar boat. I had Joe Burrow as my (laughs) starter. Tough day. Uh, now, now, to be fair, to be fair, I'm the commissioner of the league you're talking about. You lost by just under 100 points. Nobody's ever lost by 100. So you've got that to hold on to, but it wasn't uh, It pretty? wasn't pretty. No, no. no. I, I set a new league record uh, for biggest margin of loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the previous record was also held by me. <laughs> you also also set the record for fewest points scored in a week. So the rest of the season's uphill from here, right? <laughs> you would hope. Hey, you and this, hope. Is, this is a shout out to for fantasy football commissioners. Keep some fun league history because it keeps people engaged and it lets people know exactly where they stand. So not only did Ryan lose this week, he lost as bad as anyone has ever lost. And we wouldn't have known that without a record book. That's... Thanks, Jack. (laughs) Thanks, Jack. That helps out a ton, dude. Uh, I I know there's a ton of people out there that are hurting after the first week of fantasy. Plenty of people that are panicking, myself included. I'm just all over the place trying to make something happen for my roster. But uh, there's a ton of people out there that should not be worried. Let's uh, let's do a quick introduction to the show. This is Hanging Banners. We are uh, your three hosts, as aforementioned. I'm Ryan Sartori, alongside Jack Coachman and Tyler Witt. And this is going to be a show that dives into into a little bit of everything. Uh, Tyler, you played college football for six years, and so you have a, a really good grasp of college football and everything that happens in there behind the scenes and on the scenes as well. Uh, Jack, I know you're a big-time college basketball fan and an even bigger NFL fan, hence the Saints hat donning your head. Um, I'd like to think that I have a pretty deep understanding of baseball, and together all three of us will try to uh, – understand what the nba is um <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna touch on a lot of stuff in this podcast uh the big topic stuff of course also gonna have some you know hot takes and whatever those tend to pop up as you uh go through a podcast having opinions and whatnot but i'd like to start in what was probably the craziest league this weekend in college football and i know the nfl had some really crazy upsets but 
it was the Sun Belt's weekend to shine. The sun was shining in the Sun Belt this weekend. Uh, Tyler, what was the biggest upset? Was it Marshall over Notre Dame? Was it App State over Texas State or Texas A&M? Or was it uh, Georgia Southern shining bright against Nebraska? I definitely think it was Marshall versus Notre Dame. Um, Notre Dame just had a solid game against Ohio State last week. Um, they come out looking to, you know, teams like this think it's a cupcake game. You know, it's it's to, week two is the week everyone's trying to get better. You always see better results in the second week is what most coaches that I've ever had told uh, echo to the team. So, you know, you, they were probably looking to, you know, compared to Ohio State, they – had that atmosphere, how crazy it was. And coming down from that to play Marshall, I mean, that's a tough switch. And so mentally they probably weren't ready, but I mean, give it to Marshall as much as I, I dislike Marshall um, props to them for, for that performance against Notre Dame. Jack, I know that smirk. What thought came through your head? I I just like the I, I like the dislike on Marshall that uh, the, I, I don't know that there's a school that has a ton of hate across the country. I also had a brief run in with Marshall. That was one of uh, the few games that I broadcast my freshman year at Miami University. We were playing Marshall. I can't remember the quarterback's name. I remember he was really, really good at the time. And uh, so it's a school that it doesn't get a lot of acclaim. So I just like, you know, eh, don't like Marshall, but like, yeah, pick some schools to not like. That's totally fine. Well, and it should be noted, too, as we uh, venture into this podcast, the ways that we know one another. Jack and I were uh, on the same radio station in college, became friends uh, long enough that now we've both been out two or three years and and we still like each other and we still hang out from time to time. So uh, Jack's here. Tyler is a good friend of mine as well. Uh, Met him actually on a previous venture in uh, the Missed Call podcast. He's here now because he was on the show four or five, maybe six times. And uh, I just love talking football with him. And I love talking to him in general. These two guys are my friends and we're going to have a pretty good time on this podcast. But uh, to add to this conversation of the Sun Belt, who had the best weekend, it's it's hard to say um, between Marshall and App State, who was the better one. I mean, I think going in to Notre Dame and winning a game against uh, the Fighting Irish um, is is difficult for a team like Marshall, but they made it look easy. Um, but man, that App State game, if you were watching it, like that game was legit. And the, the best part about it wasn't even anything that happened on the football field. It was the night before. I don't know if you guys saw the video or not, but apparently at Texas A&M, they have this tradition where they dress up in overalls and they go to the stadium at midnight and they call it like their midnight scream or primal scream. It's their version of basically what every big college does. And they go and they basically just make fun of the school that's coming in. And they were saying like, you know, these hillbillies from Appalachian state, Appalachia isn't even a state. They probably can't read. They can't read a map. These hillbillies, these hillbillies. And it's like, Hey man, you know, you're from Texas, right? Your college is in Texas. (laughs) And, And then they just came out and got dog walked by app state. And it was just tremendous. Yeah, I'm looking. Uh, well, first of all, on that, calling them hillbillies, A, is not a great thing to do in the first place. But Texas A&M, for those who don't know, stands for agriculture and mechanical. Uh, so those aren't, you know, when I think if you're going to call, like, oh, you guys are coming from 
what I would imagine is an agriculturally heavy area. That is also the school you're attending. But uh, I think seeing three upsets of this nature all uh, in the Sun Belt, all were underdogs by three scores heading into the game. I don't remember a time where we've had that all come from the same conference. So very cool for the Sun Belt Conference to get ups there. Uh, also, one thing I had seen was that uh, Notre Dame, this is ties for the second largest drop in the rankings or ties for the largest, I guess, because they're out of the rankings drop from number eight to outside of the top 25. Uh, so that's 18 spots technically, because we don't know it. They don't rank them after 25, even though the votes would tell me uh, they actually are much lower than that now. Uh, so that just also gives credence to the fact that these schools that come in and they get paid a million dollars to play the big schools, if, if they pull something off, that can totally derail a power program season. Yeah, it, it is crazy. And some people may not know this, but like there are the smaller schools will get paid to go to Notre Dame, get paid to go to Texas A&M. The school gets paid and the team usually gets their ass kicked and then they head back to Appalachia or wherever. And this time, all these schools got paid and are going back to the respective, quote unquote, hillbilly towns, as the A&M students put it, with with a bag and with a W. And and now App State is hosting uh, college game day this weekend. And I think as they should, you know, week one, they had that awesome game against UNC, which they should have won. And, you know, I, I wasn't as surprised to see App State pull off this upset. Um, you know, SEC kind of you can kind of lean towards the SEC being good, especially Texas A&M. They had a great season last year. But, you know, App State getting college game day is not really a surprise to me, especially after the past two weeks. They've had the most interesting game the past two weeks. Very true. I think maybe the biggest ramifications that come from the Sun Belt having the weekend they did is with Georgia Southern upsetting Nebraska, if you can call it that. Scott Frost officially gets the boot from his alma mater after going 16 and 31. He was only ranked once, and that was uh, 24. They were ranked 24th back in 2019. They wanted him gone so bad they're willing to pay him his $15 million severance of what's left on his contract. They could have waited three more weeks and would have only owed him $8 million, but they really wanted him gone that bad. It's the public pressure too, right? When you're a big, I mean, Nebraska, when I think of it still, even though, as you highlighted, they haven't been a winning program over the last few years, they've finished poorly and not the strongest conference in the country. Uh, they're still a football school, right? Like when I think Nebraska, if I'm like, you know, what, what am I going to watch at Nebraska? I definitely put football on the list. And so you've got boosters that are going to hold your feet to the fire. You've got students, you've got fans, alumni. So it's one of those, the decision even though it seems like a bold move, given the millions of dollars they're losing as a university, like it's already baked into these contract situations because you don't know how good a coach is going to be, especially coming from a successful smaller program where he's not facing big 10 opponents, uh, what seven, eight times a year. Yeah. And well, it is, it's, it's Nebraska is a, a once proud uh, big 10 school and uh, they're, they're a school. You're right. They are dominantly football. I think of them as a volleyball school as well. They usually have a really good volleyball program. Uh, but Nebraska kind of has a record of being OK with like jumping from coach to coach to coach. Since 2005, I was reading they've spent 50 million dollars in buyout money. Which is which is bonkers. You think 15 mil for Scott Frost is the biggest expense that they have right now. In addition to that, 6.5 mil for Bo Pelini and 
two mil for the uh what did we what did we look up and see mike riley's from jack was it xfl uh, since being at Nebraska, he's been in the AAF, the XFL, and the USFL. So he's head coached every offshoot league over the last few years. Okay, we've got Tyler back. Uh, Tyler, we're in the midst of talking about Scott Frost and obviously the disappointment uh, that he brought a lot of Nebraska fans in his uh, tenure there going 16 and 31. Like I was saying, he was only ranked once in 2019, and even then they were only ranked 24th. Um, And then we went on to say, this is a school that has no problem spending buyout money since 2005. They've spent about $50 million in buyout money, including uh, the three biggest expenses. Scott Frost is $15 million. Bo Pelini's $6.5 million and Mike Riley's $6.2 million. Yeah. And I, I was able to hear you guys talking and Jack mentioned the, the public pressure, but also, it's like a football conference, and there's heavy expectations for Nebraska every year for some reason. Every year, you know, they I think they had them like preseason ranked. Some people did, and it was like outrageous, especially after the season they had last year. You don't really think this year's going to be much different. They've lost a ton of talent to the transfer portal. They weren't able to replace it with much, and, you know, just, just a combination of things. I think it I mean, losing that game, you had to assume that Scott Frost was going to be fired. Yeah, I mean, and if it, if it wasn't this week, it would have been in three weeks. Like It was an inevitability. I think that's probably what Nebraska sees is they, they look at it and they're like, we're going to fire him anyway. We have the money to do it. We might as well just do it and hope that we can salvage something from this season. Uh, but speaking of money owed, a uh, certain coach, Tyler, that we've been having conversation about, Dabo Sweeney just signed a gigantic contract, 10 years worth $115 million. He's the second highest paid college coach right behind Nick Saban, who signed on August 23rd. Uh, Saban's making $11.7 million a year. Obviously, Dabo will make $11.5 million per year. Takes on this. I think it's very hypocritical of Dabo, um, personally. He is not a fan of – he's not pro players making money. And we mentioned that in the pilot last week. But, you know, he, he doesn't want anyone to get paid other than himself. So to take $115 million contract and then be like, well, no NIL. We're not going to use the transfer portal. You know, players need to just be happy that they're going to school. Very hypocritical in my opinion. And – I just, I just have a hard time understanding Dabo and how he's going to adapt in this new world of college football. Yeah, because and we had a conversation about this on our pilot podcast, which you can find on our YouTube page. It's already up there. Um, but part of the thing that we have an issue with 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 Dabo is that, like you were saying, he's not really adapted to this new era of college football, doesn't love using the transfer portal, uh, doesn't spend a lot of money uh, or doesn't let his players really uh, pursue NIL deals to, you know, to um, fund their college experience, so to speak, uh, but then goes out and get the second gets the second. Uh, uh, highest contract in college football. It is kind of uh, hypocritical in that way. Yeah, I just, I'm just, I just have such a hard time dealing with it because I talked to another one of my friends recently in the transfer portal, 
And he kind of walked me through the whole process and how coaches are handling NIL. And for them, it was, it was like a big deal for them to even be talking to him because they refused so much to use a transfer portal. And the suffering that their offensive line played in last week's game uh, is definitely attributed to that. They lost one guy to injury, one guy to the transfer portal, and they had a hard time replacing him. So you can see the struggles are already pretty evident for Clemson. Yeah, you look at these schools, too, that especially in, I mean, you could say the modern era of football can mean a lot of different things. But even if you look at like a micro modern, like just look at the last five to 10 years, there's been ripples of change or proposed change, including NIL stuff in the NCAA. And Dabo Sweeney continues to be behind the eight ball on messaging. He's a very vocal coach, but this isn't the first time where he's said or shown something that could be perceived as hypocritical or standoffish or elitist even. I mean, this is a guy that prior to signing this mega deal you're talking about was already listed as having a net worth at some places list him at $30 million. So this is a guy who he's got a lot. He has years in front of him coaching. And unfortunately, it's a situation where as a competitor, he probably sees that the effects of NIL or this could become an even playing field. And that even playing field could be a disruption to the people at the top, which is another kind of microcosm of the world that sports endures. And we just haven't seen it in college football before. So uh, another interesting thing that I think that we're, we're starting to see with all the upsets and things that, that are, uh, that are coming uh, is the fact that uh, the, I think the, the fourth spot, maybe even the third spot in our final four this year, it's going to be up for grabs. I said last week when we recorded our pilot, like maybe it's Texas A&M's year because they had such a good year last year. Then they come out and they go from, what was it? Number six, all the way down to 24. Their, their chances of making it is uh, it's, it's over. Uh, and so you start to look at the top four, you see Georgia's the new one, Alabama's two, Ohio state three. Now you got Michigan at four. Now, Ohio State and Michigan are going to play in week 13. So even if those two teams go undefeated, there's an opportunity that the end, at the end of the year, they look at that and they say, we can't send both. We have to send and champ. And so it, it, is, it, is, um, it is kind of a curious thing right now. That fourth spot is going to uh, be up in the air, I think, for the rest of the season. I think a lot of it's going to come down to Michigan's schedule. Um, I mean, to put them at number four, they have won pretty significantly the past two weeks. They haven't really played anyone, though. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the team develops along the rest of the season, especially the Big Ten is, you know, better than better than most conferences this year, I, I, I like to think. Um, you know, didn't see many upset. I mean, Nebraska, yes, but... Um, outside of Nebraska, I think there's a pretty strong talent pool amongst every team. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, and you're going 13 deep. The top 13 are all 2-0 and right now in the AP polls. So there's a lot of time to shake up. You've got some quality wins sprinkled around there. Kentucky beating Florida this last week. BYU beating Baylor. Uh, my favorite move by the Associated Press in their top 25 this week was setting Alabama up for a quality win that they don't deserve, which is Texas after losing to Alabama has now entered the rankings, uh, moved up a few spots, even though they were playing with a backup quarterback for a good chunk of that game and uh, some other backups at otherwise startable positions due to injury. Uh, so 
you have to start looking at the quality wins and like there's one for Alabama. We've got one for BYU. We've got one for Kentucky. A few of these other schools that already have uh, Georgia over Oregon was a big one in the first week. So that's going to be the separator in the early season. And then Tyler's got a good point. When you go into conference season, there's going to be games that you can't see coming. Even if it's the seventh best team in the big 10 going against the best, like the talent margin is so much closer than a big 10 team going against, you know, an FCS school. Yeah, eventually a Michigan State's going to run into a Purdue, right, Tyler? Absolutely. Spoiler the makers. Spoiler <laughs> the makers. And still, that was one of the craziest uh, football games I'd ever been a part of. Uh, last year, Tyler played for uh, Purdue on their football team, played guard for them, and uh, I was there for the upset against the – was it then ranked number three? Michigan yeah. State Spartans, and mm-hmm. it was just – it was something to behold. And then to get to rush the field afterwards was was pretty incredible too. Um, last thing that I want some comments on, uh, Jack, you already kind of mentioned it, but it was the, the Texas-Alabama game, how crazy that was for me as somebody who didn't get to watch the game to try to follow it on my phone, how crazy that experience was. And just going back and forth and seeing, oh, Texas is up. And then five minutes later, checking and be like, oh, they're down. And then looking again and saying, oh, my God, they're up. And, and then at the end, of course, you know, Alabama's got quality kickers all the time. So uh, they ended up losing. But that game, even though I watched it on just my phone uh, through, you know, whatever like play by play update there was, uh, was was pretty exhilarating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I thought Texas was in a great place to win that game uh, up until Quinn Ewers got hurt. It was kind of a blow, but then the, the backup stepped in and he performed really well. I think Texas didn't get a couple calls that they should have, especially uh, the safety. I thought I thought um, they they called targeting the passer or uh, roughing the passer, and I just thought that was a ridiculous call. Should have been safety. They knew they got the call wrong, but since they didn't call it safety, they couldn't rule it as safety, and that would have carried so much momentum for Texas. I think it would have changed the course of the game. Yeah, it was it was pretty shoddy officiating, that's for sure. But I think the the, the commenters uh, comment on that would be like, oh, it's early season for the referees, too. Like they still have some kinks to work out. Regardless, uh, the old saying, Jack, is good teams win. Great teams cover and Texas covered by a lot. They were three point or three touchdown home dogs and they only lost by a point. Well, and this was also the product of, and I wish I had written the stat down because I saw it a zillion times that it's been, was it seven years or something since Alabama played a true road game that like they always play neutral games as their road games. Uh, And so that obviously, yeah, I think Tyler, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought I saw something like that. Maybe you had seen Uh, a similar uh, number. I believe that is the case. They typically do for non-conference games, especially of that nature, they do like a neutral site. Um, yeah. we, we saw it earlier with uh, Oregon's uh, opener against Oregon. Yeah, or so that, Georgia, yeah, Georgia Oregon. That definitely, uh, yeah, that's I, that's the word I was missing is they haven't played a, a true non-conference road game in many years, and that's just one of the many ways that the you know privileged college football schools can stack the deck in their favor is that Alabama doesn't have to play Texas in Texas ever. They gave it a shot, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is the last time we see them play a non-conference road game in another decade. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're done doing that for quite some time. Um, let's make a jump 
to the NFL, where we talked a ton about the upsets in college football. There were upsets aplenty in week one of the NFL. I'm curious for both of you, what was your biggest surprise, whether it's just one team as a whole, offensively, defensively? What's the biggest surprise from this past week? Uh, for me, I thought it was the Cincinnati loss. I thought the offense just looked awful. And you, you thought they made some strides in the offseason with an offensive line, and their offensive line struggled immensely versus T.J. Watt on that defense. And Joe Burrow threw four interceptions. I mean, turnovers are the key, a key factor in the game. If you turn the ball over more than the other team, you're most likely going to lose. And four interceptions, brutal. Yeah, it, it was pretty bad. You, you mentioned TJ Watt uh, news breaking this afternoon that he's not done for the season. He is injured. He's going to miss a couple weeks. But TJ Watt even putting out on his own Twitter that he'll be back like the Terminator. He put out that little gif or jif or however you identify. I don't know. Um, but uh, he'll, he will be back, which is it's, it's great because he's somebody that people – want to see play football. He's probably the biggest draw for the Steelers right now. Um, so him being back will be awesome. But I mean, Joe Burrow just did not look very good this week. Uh, he's somebody who, for whatever reason, just looked confused out there. Even, even though last season he looked like the most confident quarterback we'd ever seen. The guy was making decisions left and right, leading a team that had no business being in the Super Bowl, the AFC championship to those locations. Um, but this week is just, ugh, it looked rough. Yeah, I think we, we don't talk too often about non-quarterback trades uh, in the NFL years after they take place, that like there are blockbuster trades that happen, you know, a few times every season, every offseason. And I think one that deserves more revisiting is the absolute steal that the Pittsburgh Steelers got when they traded a first-round pick for Minka Fitzpatrick. Uh, I think that we knew back at the time that he was one of the you know best, he probably was the best defensive player on that Dolphins team, uh, and you don't see first round picks get moved around too often. He had 14 total tackles, including uh, pick six. I think he was also the player who blocked an Evan McPherson kick. And so you have like one person who can do all of these things. You absolutely would give a first round pick. And there was, ooh, who's going to win this one? We'll see. That's like sneaky shout out on the Steelers defense, that impact player. Yeah, I mean, he had a, he had a tremendous game. He was all over the place, helping stop the run. He's one of those rare safeties too that's not only able to be a ball hawk and and impact the game on the back end, but come down into the box, impact the run game, hit somebody in the mouth. He's one of those rare guys, and I feel like when we saw that trade, Jack, that you're mentioning with the Dolphins, that kind of started that landslide of top talent being traded for picks. Like the NFL, I would say five, six years ago was not a place that you saw a lot of trades. It just didn't happen all that much, uh, especially top talent. Teams tended to keep their talented players. But now it's happening at a, at a rate that I don't think I've ever seen in the National Football League is that top guys get traded. And number one picks mean something now. Firsts mean something now. So, um, you know, those are flying around. I think that kind of started that trend. Um, I think one thing that uh, that I was shocked by uh, was it, it came last night and it, it, it kind of capped off um, a week of of head coaches in their first appearances in the NFL. 
Right. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett maybe had one of the worst showings of the new coaches in the NFL, uh, especially coming down the final minute. It was um, it was interesting to see a head coach get lost in the moment. Right. Like we know that a timeout, they had three timeouts coming down to the final minute, fourth and five inside the 50. Uh, they're go the, the Broncos trying to make a push to win the game against the Seahawks. And it was, it was interesting to see a coach get lost in the fact that he knew he probably should call a timeout there. He knew that was like the natural progression. Like we have three, we should break here, figure out what exactly we want to do and go forth. But just like the emotion of the moment going from being an offensive coordinator to now being the guy who calls the shots, it was, it was surprising to see how poorly managed that situation was by Nathaniel Hackett. Well, and lost in that script, too, is the fact that they were on the road at Seattle, which even though the Seahawks aren't the team that they once were in the, you know, prime Russell Wilson years and Legion of Boom, like that is still considered one of the loudest, most hostile environments in professional sports. Uh, On top of that, you know, you're talking sports specifically during the game about situational awareness in any sport, you know, baseball, softball, like who's on base? Uh, Are they fast? Are they slow? You know, how many outs are there? In in football, it's the same thing, play to play. And it was just this, there was this cosmic narrative that had set itself up that Nathaniel Hackett seemed to just be totally unaware to, which is the fact that this was a homecoming game for Russell Wilson. I was surprised that he got booed considering he got traded. It's not like he chose to leave. He gave him multiple Super Bowl appearances. Uh, you know, he got his, he got his one ring there. And so you think that this is going to be a bit tamer of an environment and the pressure's on it's a late game situation. You have to give Russell Wilson, who's one of the comeback Kings of the last decade. You have to give him the moment. If he flops it, he flops it, but five yards from one of the best fourth quarter specialists in a return to Seattle. Like if the, if pro sports were to be scripted, he converts that. So let's at least give it the shot, right? Hack it. I, I couldn't agree more, Jack. I, that's exactly that was exactly my thought. And it's like even if you're a novice football mind, you should be able to look at that and say something doesn't feel right about this situation and how it was managed. And you would be correct in in that assumption. In that, like you totally pull that game to the side, you talk about it, and you go back. And if you convert it, you still have two timeouts to get down the field with, with again, one of the best comeback tacticians in football, and, and especially in the history of the game. The guy leads fourth quarter comebacks like it's nothing. Um, uh, the, the common comment on Twitter last night was, you paid him how much money and didn't trust him with a fourth and five in week one? It doesn't make sense. And so Nathaniel Hackett just had a situation last night that I found extremely surprising from somebody who's likely been around football his entire life. Watch him just absolutely lose who he was in the moment. I think another thing that we really should look at is the situation they were in. Like, yes, it was fourth and five, but to kick a field goal from there, it was like a record setting kick. Yeah, it was 64 yards. And it's not like you have like some well-known kicker who's like can can hit that regularly. Like he's known for that. No, you. It's just another guy. So you had the guy that you paid all that money to, and now you're not trusting him. It's absurd. 
Well, and then to be fair to Brandon McManus, who's the kicker for the Broncos, he, he he does have a good leg, but he gets discredited often because playing in Denver, right? You can kick a little bit farther on average. But even he, who has a career high sixty-one yarder, like you went three yards beyond this guy who already has one of the longest kicks ever. It reminded me of, oh, it had to be so many years ago. Back the Oakland Raiders, it was going into halftime. Sebastian Janikowski somehow convinced his coach that like, you got to let me try this field goal rather than a Hail Mary attempted like a 70 yarder. And it's like, I bet at some point in practice, he hit a 70 yarder and is like, well, now I can do it in a game. I'm sure McManus has hit 64 yarders, but not on the road, not on a Monday night football, you know, not with all this other stuff. So there's so many factors that bake in. And I, I wonder even if he makes that field goal, do, Hackett's not getting praised. He's not getting as harshly scolded, but that would have been a gutsy decision, even if it worked out and the kick had the leg, it was just off by a bit. Exactly. And that exactly. We put, if, if that goes through the uprights, everybody pulls away going, Oh, at least the Broncos got a win, but Hackett's got to figure some things out. That's the narrative instead of like, what the hell was he doing? Now I will to, to give credit where credit is due. Nathaniel Hackett did come to the media today and said, Looking back on that, I should have managed that differently. Which is encouraging to hear if you're a Broncos fan when you have this team that you, I'm sure there are people in Denver who are thinking this is the team that's going to get us back to the Super Bowl. It's encouraging to those people. It should be encouraged. It should be. It should be something you're like, okay, at least you know he messed up. It just sounds so wimpy, right? It's like very <laughs> defiant to the the machismo that we've set up where like NFL head coaches, like they're all rooted in their ways, but we're getting this next generation of coaches that I think are redefining the dynamic and understand, like you have your Sean McVay, your Brandon Staley, your Mike McDaniels, like you're getting people that when you give them the reins for the first time, this new school of thought is it's probably better. I know I'm going to get criticized for saying, yeah, I messed up, but Think about how mad everybody is if he comes out this morning and is like, guys, you're wrong. We would do the exact same thing every time. Like, you can't do that. That's the old way of head coaching, and it was laughable. So it's, to me, very important that he said what he said, but I don't have as much stake in the Broncos. It's maybe still a little unnerving for fans. And I do have this stat to throw out there from Warren Sharp on Twitter, at Sharp Football. Brandon McManus' career history on 62-plus yard field goals. 2016, a 62-yard field goal, missed. In 2018, a 62-yard field goal, missed. In 2021, just last year, a 63-yard field goal, missed. It goes on and on. 2019, a 64-yarder. Last year, he attempted a 70-yard field goal and missed. All like data points that are right there. They're, they're just last year. Somebody is probably still left over from last year who was probably like, hey, hey. Nate, no, don't do this. He can't hit it. But there's a new data point to enter. 64 yards, 2022, a miss. And again, it's just you pay Russ $242 million and you don't trust him in week one with a fourth and five. So that's what I was utterly shocked about. But uh, Jack, what were you most shocked by in week one? Uh. I, I, there were a lot of surprising things. I think the one that stood out to me, and I haven't heard enough buzz, in my opinion, the Kansas City Chiefs, who we knew were good. We thought they were good. 
We're not surprised that they're good. They put up 44 points against a Cardinals team that's considered a fringe contender. Now, I know they're missing two of their top three wide receivers, and I know that the, you know, the Chiefs have been just rolling full head of steam for years, right? So this matchup is one where, yeah, the Kansas City was favored by a decent amount, but to put up 44 points after all the questions in the offseason about is Patrick Mahomes really that good or did he just have Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey and now he only has Kelsey? It's like, first of all, if you look, not even closely, if you just take a broad look, yes, Patrick Mahomes is really, really good. I mean, people are competing to be better than him. He's the bar. But we got to see him work with Juju Smith-Schuster. We got to see him work with uh, a couple of hints of Sky Moore, Nicole Hardman finally getting more of a spotlight after years of this guy could break out, this guy could break out. Now he might not break out in a big way. Uh, and then Travis Kelsey as dominant as ever. So I think this very easily answered the question surrounding the Chiefs offense, which is Tyreek's gone. What do you do? Scoring 44 points on the road in week one is a pretty good way to shut down the naysayers. Yeah, I mean, and it looked easy. It, they looked dominant. It was like instantaneously, oh, there's already a Travis Kelsey touchdown. Like it, it, it was from take to take, it was a dominant performance by the Chiefs who know that they are being slighted this year a little bit. They have a little bit of disrespect in their corner. What is uh, our Saban? Saban calls the easy games rat poison, but this is like the opposite of rat poison. It's like jet fuel. Like they're just they have jet fuel that's going to burn hot this year, you know. Um, and it, I there's so many people that think that just the redaction of Tyreek Hill is going to sink their ship, but like there is they're they're a team that's known for developing talent at this point. They took Patrick Mahomes, who nobody thought was going to be anything, and turned turned him it, with obviously the input of Patrick Mahomes. They can't just simply say, Patrick, now you're the best quarterback in the NFL. But they they turned him into a beast. They do it with so many guys. Tyreek Hill. They did it with Kareem Hunt before he got himself in trouble. They did it with Travis Kelsey. You know, they are a they are a player development organization, and there's no reason to believe that they're going to take some sort of giant step back. They they draft a new young wide receiver in Sky Moore that you mentioned, Jack, who's quick, runs decent routes, has good hands, and they still have guys that have been in that system for years, in, including Mecole Hardman. And I think in the brief time that I was with them, I was with them this past year with that rookie mini camp and just being around the coaches and the, just there's a different energy there. You know, it's, it's definitely uh, an organization built upon building up players and making them better. And it's definitely a player first organization rather than, you know, coaches, you know, they kind of take the lead and they're really hard and stuff and kind of like Belichick um, versus their style. They're more player centric. Okay. Well, how can we get these guys better? What do you guys need? Um, and I think it just showed And I, I was particularly impressed with their defense. Yeah. I, I think all the way around, they looked like a very confident football team. Uh, the, AFC West is going to be one to watch this year. It's kind of unfair that the Raiders and Chargers got matched up together in week one because somebody was leaving that game with a loss. Uh, we know, well, Jack, we thought we might see a tie last year. I knew your head would be. We thought we might see a tie last year, but still somebody left that game with a loss and it was the Chargers and they didn't go to the playoffs. Um, 
opposite thing happened this year. But uh, I, I think it would be awesome if they if they didn't play each other until like the final eight weeks of the season, just to see how many of those teams were undefeated. Well, and my head tilt wasn't about last year's Raiders Chargers. It's the fact that divisional matchups do not necessarily end with one team losing as another one of the surprises of the week was the Houston Texans hosting right. the Indianapolis Colts uh, ended me. in a 20 to 20 tie. Uh, so that right now the AFC South has a combined zero wins, but I think that was that I, the AFC South was in my mind, at least I saw it as a fairly competitive division within itself, but at a much lower caliber than the AFC West being a competitive division. And so this in that sort of like dog eat dog type setup, this really looks like it could be between Jacksonville who already is looking a little bit better than last year, but very low bar uh, Tennessee, who didn't look great when it came down to it in the end. This is a, a division where this might not be the last tie we see this season. I'll tell you another team that I was pleasantly surprised by, even though they lost, was the Hard Knocks Detroit Lions. The eat your kneecap Detroit Lions. The, these guys came out, they were trailing by a good amount at the half. They were trailing by 10 in the fourth, and they still just kept battling against a team that's likely going to win their division now uh, in the Eagles, and they only lose by three points. They put up 35. It wasn't like a week like, oh, they're down by a touchdown and it's 17 to 10. They were down by 10 it was 28 to 38 and they only lost by a field goal which i think for a team in technically its infancy is is a pretty good battle yeah i mean they're down by 17 points headed into the fourth quarter and it, it sounds weird to say i didn't watch a lot of hard knocks this season and i might go back and watch at some point but followed the narratives and stuff and dan campbell's been a figure in the media for a while so we know what he's like and watching the Eagles Lions. It was like the field was, you know, a canvas and the Lions were playing like Dan Campbell's brush strokes on it. Like you could just see it wasn't we're so much better than the other team. It wasn't like we're just going to out muscle and like out talent the other guys. But everything looked so effortful. I mean, it, you don't see it too often with guys who are the best in their field. But this looked like a team that wanted to hustle, that wanted to make impact plays. And that has to be, in my mind, a reflection on the persona that Dan Campbell has created in the public eye, which I imagine also embodies who he is as a coach, that this is a team that they're going to go to war for him. They're going to try, and they're not necessarily going to be better than every team they play against, but they're not going away easy. All in all, a great week one in the NFL, and we we gear up for it all over again. Today's Tuesday. We gear up for it all over again in just two very short days. A full week of football is on the way with week two of the NFL, week three of college football. But let's transition into a much slower-paced sport that's trying to speed itself up just a little bit. Major League Baseball announced four major changes to the rules of their game coming next season. Number one, and this might be the most influential in the game next year, is the introduction of a pitch clock. Now, let me explain, because that's going to be instituted, and pitchers will now have 15 seconds to go into the motion of pitching. And if somebody's on base, they have 20 seconds to go into the motion of pitching. The catcher must be in position and ready to do his duties with 10 seconds left. The batter must have both feet in the box and alert with eight seconds left. If he's not an automatic strike will be assessed to their count, which I think is nuts. 
And a pitcher, if not in the motion of pitching, or if a catcher not in in, in his squat, uh, in their allotted time frames, an automatic ball will be assessed to the batter's count. This is kind of crazy to me because there's never been a situation in Major League Baseball where automatic strikes and automatic balls can be just thrown around uh, because of a a time limit. I think this is really interesting, and I'm interested most to see how it affects the early stages of next season when there is undoubtedly going to be pitchers who go over their time limit time and time again. Just looking on Twitter, though, I think – the benefits will be good for the game. Um, I, I saw on Twitter there was a video in comparison uh, a pitcher in AAA with pitch clock versus a major league at bat without the pitch clock. And I mean, it was like almost a full minute, minute and a half longer than the AAA game, which I mean, speeding up the game in that way, I think. It, it'll be easier to, for them to maintain an audience. And that's what they're struggling with now is maintaining a, a younger audience and recouping the fans that are getting older. And they're the last really major sport that I can think of to figure this out. Everybody else seems to have some kind of handle on uh, how the clock affects their game. I mean, in soccer, you've got stoppage time to try and account for, you know, the in-betweens as the game goes on. Uh, tennis has a serve clock. NFL has a play clock. Basketball has a shot clock. Like there are things that don't necessarily distract from the actual course of play that help to keep the game moving. And my biggest concern with this rule is it throws the gauntlet down on already probably the most criticized figures in baseball, which are the umpires. Uh, Because like you said, Ryan, the, the penalties are harsh. You could just have invisible ghost pitches essentially, right? Like, That was a ball. Nothing happened, but it was a ball. Same thing with strike on the other end. So we really need as close to equal enforcement as possible. And I trust the players will adapt to this much quicker than the umpires. And I think that they will too, because the the video that Tyler brings up as, as a point, the video that he brings up was the same pitcher. It was the pitcher in AAA and the pitcher in the majors and the difference in his delivery between one pitch. So obviously the pitch clock in AAA, he's firing it off every 15 seconds. Once he gets to the bigs and there's no limit on how long he holds the rock, it was two minutes in between a pitch, two minutes and 10 seconds in between a pitch. And so, you know, these are the type of things they're looking to crack down on. And it's not impossible for a pitcher or whomever to go out there and do that. What I will say is that I think it, it might – it might uh, um, increase the issue that we're having in baseball where like starters are only going five innings or whatever. They're going to have to be super uh, uh, cardiovascularly uh, trained going into this next season because it, it, it's going to take a toll on their body. I call it an issue, but really, I mean, you know, starters going five innings or whatever, it doesn't matter. They can go five, six, they can go four if they want. They just won't get a quality start, but it's not an issue. It's just pitchers are going to matter more. Their cardiovascular endurance is going to matter more now. And some people out there might be thinking, well, if you're not ready and the 15 seconds is coming up, step off. They made a rule for that too. So uh, there's going to be limits to pickoffs and step offs. Essentially, a pitcher per batter, person at the plate, per batter, a pitcher can step off or attempt to pick off twice in one at bat. 
if they attempt a third pickoff, it is allowed. But if they don't convert that pickoff to an out, it's considered a balk and a free base is awarded. Which, again, is incredibly harsh rules. They are trying to really uh, ramrod this thing into saying we need to speed it up at any cost. We need to speed up our game. Well, think about if you just do like in my head, I I haven't seen too many true projections of like the decrease in game time and you have to factor in advertising, things like that. But if what Tyler's saying does end up being correct for a majority of pitchers, if you're saving um, upwards of a minute per batter, there are a minimum of 51 at bats in a baseball game, right? If the home team wins, you're playing eight and a half uh, innings. And that's almost an hour in itself. So imagine a three and a half hour game taking two and a half hours. Uh, The pickoff thing too, I think if I just had to quickly comb through my mind and figure out what are the things that were the most yawn worthy in my years of watching baseball, it's not a pickoff. A pickoff attempt on its own is exciting. When a guy tries five or six pickoff attempts in one at bat and the success rate on pickoff attempts is naturally so, so, so low. It's aggravating. It's irritating because you're watching this essentially non-play. It it hardly even factors in. It doesn't go to pitch count. It'll make it in as like pickoff attempt first base. But that's one that I think was a problematic rule to begin with. And I'm really glad they tied that loose end up. I think one of the aspect of that rule that I really like is that it allows base runners to be more aggressive. Because I think one of the most exciting plays in baseball is a stolen base. And it just means that the quality of catcher needs to go up because you're going to have guys stealing that much more often. So to have a guy behind a plate who is able to hold someone down is going to be that much more exciting, I think. I think, Tyler, you're exactly right. And it's, it's, it's going to be um, that catchers with slow pop times are just simply not going to cut it because they're going to have to throw down to second base a lot more now. Im- immediately, this rule means there's going to be more stolen base attempts. Immediately. This also means that the that speed on your roster is going to become paramount you're going to have to have guys like bobby witt jr trey turner uh even to a lesser extent terrence gore like guys who like get signed as like specialty pinch runners and only get signed on like august 31st so that they can make the playoff roster you know these guys that that are are just there for speed might wind up with contracts now because speed is going to be a premium thing needed in the in MLB to win ball games. It, and, it's, and that'll, it's just, go ahead. That, that'll go towards the innovation of the game too, I think, which is that baseball, you know, it's dried up to a certain point. I remember the Kansas City Royals, I want to say it was four years ago, were rolling out essentially a speed lineup. They had Whit Merrifield, Adalberti Mondesi, Uh, Billy Hamilton, I think Terrence Gore was on that team too. And it was like, oh, this is kind of cool to look at a team go, what if we didn't take four power hitters that are all going to bat, you know, 220 and put them in the lineup, but we have contact speed guys. The experiment didn't work out great, but now it could work better and you'll get variants in baseball too. And I bring up the name Trey Turner. The guy's a free agent this offseason and is going has just found himself like an additional $30 million. I promise. He's going to sign an um, just enormous contract with whichever team wants him because he's a he's 
a phenomenal baseball player in the field and with a bat in his hands, but he also impacts the game now in this game in this this version of the game that doesn't necessarily ma- like speed doesn't matter as much it's definitely important to have but it do- it's not going to be it's not as important now as it will be next year he just found himself an additional 30 million dollars the guy the guy is going to cash in um in addition to these two rules that we've mentioned in the field behind the pitcher who now has the clock and the limitations to his pickoff attempts, he will not have a shifted infield or at least an extremely shifted infield because the new rule uh, that's going to be implemented next year uh, states that uh, two infielders must be on either side of second base. None of those infielders can be touching the outfield grass. If an out or infielder is touching the outfield grass, or if an infielder is uh, uh, lined up one way or the other, right? The shortstop to the right of the second base bag or the second baseman to the left of the, the second base bag. If they're there, it'll be deemed an illegal defense and that'll be challengeable. If the challenging team wins their challenge, they'll be able to either a accept the outcome of the play or B tack on a ball to the batter's count. So let's just say it's a three, two count and we're in the bottom of the ninth and I strike out. And for whatever reason, the shortstop has his heels in the grass. If somebody catches it, I can then challenge it. And when we do that, we'll see his heels in the grass. And then that three, two strikeout will turn into a uh, three, two walk, which is, I think is bonkers. It, 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 it changes it changes the scape of the game. Uh, it changes the strategy of the game. I'm 100% on board with it. But like it's it's it just changes the the outcomes, the inputs and the outputs of baseball. Right. Like it just it changes it completely. Yeah, I think, uh, Ryan, it's it's uh, fun that the two of us add up to being 100% on board because I think this was a, a disastrous change. I, I think this was a horrible thing. And honestly, as soon as the news came out, I, I was thinking of, you know, what, what are the angles here? Because, you know, the things that come to my mind are, okay, so we've now turned baseball into a sport. We're coaching. Already this was a sport that gets, you know, teased a little bit because there's 162 games that things like, chance luck weather take a you know a pretty big impact on is one team really that much better because anybody can be anybody on a given day right you're playing with a large sample coaches now are going to do even less because there's not really much defensive scheming going on you are just setting your lineup just like a fantasy manager would to me this turns the game of baseball into more of a game of foosball where the rules say you have to have your players here i can't think of really any other sport that allows that and i can think of a lot of examples in other sports where you know, players or coaches will strategically set up things that we haven't seen before. There's that, you know, kind of rare picture of a four infielders all between first and second base. I think, was it the Dodgers who did that a couple of years it, ago? It was, it was the Dodgers or the Royals, but it sounds more like a Dodgers thing to do. Right. And it's like, there's, there's strategy behind that. So again, I, I already am critical of what kind of impact do, what kind of positive impact do MLB managers have on a game? It really seems like it's more of a, don't mess up and you'll be fine. Uh, but you can't come up with these crafty things. I haven't read into the exact letter of the rule, but I believe there's going to be rules that also prevent if you have to have four in the infield, that means we're done with four man outfielders uh, that we can't do that anymore. And so 
what you're doing is you're taking away as I just complimented, like, you know, the innovation of the game, this destroys one of the few things in baseball where you can see creativity. Uh, and it really is to very little tangible gain, right? It's sort of the the boogeyman of boringness that baseball doesn't want players to get out. But it, it's one of the easiest armchair batting things to say if you're like, let's say you're a left-handed power hitter, designated hitter. We've got a universal DH now. You can play on any team. If, if you're there, your job is generally going to be to hit home runs. You're a big hitter. These are the candidates for people who are least likely to adjust to a shift. And if you are being paid millions of dollars only to hit the ball, these are people who rarely will see the field, especially with Universal DH. How are you not able to at least attempt to manipulate the ball? Uh, and only a couple players have really suffered more than the rest because of the shift. So you're definitely taking the needs of the few and putting them ahead of, one of the more unique aspects of baseball that's always been a part of the rules for a league that values history. And I couldn't agree more with Jack. And just on this rule, I think it really takes away it's kind of the, the precision of being a hitter. Like when I was playing baseball, it was like a big deal to try to hit opposite field. And you're going to see less and less of that because with the shift, like I mean, you obviously had to try to do that. And I think you're going to see hitters suffer from it because there's no need to anymore. Like, like you said, there's no more going to be four infielders on one side of the diamond. Like, it's, it's going to be two and two. So, I mean, I, I think it really takes a lot of pressure off the hitters. And instead of making them better, it's just becoming more relaxed and for the sake of offense. Uh, let's do a let's do a little mental game real quick. Mm-hmm. So, first in the in this uh, series of mental games, what is the the hardest thing in professional sports to do? Is probably play NFL quarterback. I think. Oh, uh, okay, that I mean that sure sure we'll roll with that we'll roll with that. That's a very broad question. <laughs> if it if that's not number one, well, if that's not number one, the number one would probably be hitting a, a hundred mile an hour fastball. Yes. You're asking like if, you know, Joe Smith off the street were to just get put into a professional game or you're asking like actual sporting percentages. I think actual sporting percentages. You can look across uh, in, in, in both situations. I promise this has a point. Sure, you, sure. Yeah. Baseball. It's like, you know, if you are successful at the plate, 30 percent of the time, you're one of the best players. There's like, what, 20 players batting over 300 right now. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. So it, uh, the, the point that I'm trying to say there is 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 that it's it's an incredibly hard thing to do. Um, playing quarterback in the NFL is an incredibly hard thing to do. Um, and so the NFL years ago, realized, hey, people like seeing points. They don't want to see, uh, you know, 10 to 0 as a final score, 10 to 3 as a final score. Though it's going to happen, how can we manipulate the game in order to encourage more offense? They introduce roughing the passer. They introduce defense, defensive pass interference, or maybe not introduce them, but crack down on them harder and change how the, the wordings are in that game. And it's a lot easier to do that because uh, – Offenses have the upper hand in in football. In baseball, the upper hand has always and forever been given to the pitcher and its defense. It's just the way the game is. Um, 
in saying that, I think that when MLB looks at how they make their game better, how they massage their offense like NFL and like the NBA, how do we how do we get more runs scored? This is one step towards doing that um, is, is is adding these additional rules to the game. Jack, we texted back and forth about this as we both tried to figure out how we actually felt about this. And the way that I put it to you is it's easy for the NFL and NBA to change how their game is played offensively. It's next to impossible to change the way the game is played offensively in baseball. Because again, the upper hand is given to the pitcher and the defense. And then the hitter is said to react. Sure. Sure. But I, I I think there's a bit of flawed logic in your comparison there and that like they, they've changed a rule that was more so in addition to providing offense. I don't think when they changed the roughing the pass rules, they're like, you know what we want? We want more 15 yard penalties. I think that was a very player safety driven thing, which is a totally different thing than this is you're manipulating the 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 players, not even the field of play. I mean, if you said all baseball stadiums were going to bring their fences in by 40 feet, like that would increase offense. Sure. What you're doing is you're setting people up. This is my analogies to come back would be what if they said, you know what? We want quarterbacks to be more successful. You're only allowed to have four defensive linemen, four linebackers, and three defensive backs every sure. play. Like sure. here's exactly how, or basketball, like you can only have, you must have somebody in the lane on defense at all times. Cause now we're going to be shooting more three pointers because that removes a defender from the perimeter. Those to me would be examples of changes that force the style of play to be different. Whereas with the exception of pass rushers, and again, more in a rooted safety way, the it didn't necessarily change too much the style of quarterback play. I guess you could argue that like slides have been a little bit different, that you know, some quarterbacks can more manipulatively run the ball knowing that they can draw flags. Uh, but I think what you've done is, like I said, it's like foosball. Like you said, you must be here, you must be here. And it's not even a like, you know, this is a vague outline. They've also instituted the penalties already. Like you said, if you if your foot's on the grass, which I can't imagine will happen too often because it's an easy thing to just look down and check before each pitch. I mean, this, this is harsh stuff they're coming up with. And I don't think this will necessarily change much about like the development of play. You know, a kid playing baseball is not going to learn it a totally different way as a product of this, whereas a safety rule would change that. Um, so I, I, I understand where you're coming from on, yes, baseball needs to increase offense, but then maybe there are other ways to do it. Maybe you change the dimensions of the field or the distance from the mound to the plate, or we saw it a few years ago. Maybe you juice the balls like they, they did that. And even though it was met with criticism, if you want offense, change that. Don't change the fact that like now coaches and players have even less impact on the humanness of the game. Right. But again, and I understand where you come from with the idea that it, the roughing the passer thing was a player safety thing. I think you can also look at it from an angle of, yes, it's player safety. And I think that's probably forthright in in the NFL's mind. But it also keeps those guys on the field, which, again, I say playing quarterback in the NFL is an extremely difficult thing to do. Only so many guys are incredible at doing so. And so if you keep those guys on the field, you get a better product on the field as well, right? You keep your Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilsons and Tom Brady's on the field. You get a better product as a league overall. What's the baseball part of that? 
Like, okay, take that and apply it to the MLB rule. I think the MLB rule, if you're if you're uh, trying to massage. The other point to that, though, I guess is what I kind of left out is, again, you have to change the fabric of the game in order to give the offense any sort of upper hand. In in football, you can enforce yardage penalties. In football, you can uh, limit the way that a a player can land on another player and and mess with the wording of certain things to ensure like, oh, this is easier or this is more difficult. In baseball, it really is a lot harder because – of just what the game is, even in basketball, like it's a lot easier to change rules year to year and uh, stoke the flames of offense or, or, or not versus in baseball. Like I said, you have to change the fabric of the game. You have to like, in, in, in essence, make it foosball. Uh, and do I think it sucks to some extent? Yes. But I also want people to come flocking to this game because they want to see home runs. Like I, I, I feel like to some extent I have to be okay with this, even if I'm not okay with this, it, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm gung ho and, and all on board. Like I'm fine with it because I know what they're trying to do. And this might be the first iteration of what they, they bring to baseball. We saw the NFL for fucking eight years, try to figure out what, the hell a catch was right they tried for eight years to define what a catch was when all of us knew what a catch was catch it two feet go to the ground and that should be good enough we and we just recently figured that out so i mean the nfl is light years ahead of where major league baseball is the nba is light years ahead of where baseball is but this is their first real crack at trying to manipulate the game in a way that uh, appeals to younger people that uh, um, massages offense etc um I think I think that's the, that's the best they can do right now maybe they look at it after a year of data and they say this wasn't a great idea. Maybe we should still let guys shift. Um, Rob Dibble, who was a, a closer for the the Reds, uh, tweeted something that made me giggle, but it's also really true. Um, I'm looking for it. I'm sorry. I'm... But he, he basically said what you said, Jack, in that um, there's only like 10 guys right now that are hitting above 300. He said, I don't have a problem with bigger bases. It helps the defense as well as the offense. Pitch clock, most pitchers have to slow down. Good pitching coaches teach pace to keep the defense on their toes. No shift, who cares? Most MLB hitters can't hit worth a shit anyway because only like a couple of them are above 300. Most guys are shooting for 270, 280. So why not try to make it so that more guys can hit 300? Well, but like, I don't know. I just, when you say like, you're, you know, we want more home runs and stuff. First of all, that's not drawing audiences. That's just creating more highlights. You know, if you, if you're watching just for the, this, like, oh, we just are waiting for the big play. And like, you're not watching all the in-betweens. That's baseball to me, right? Is baseball is all of the little things that go into the product of the game. Of course. And that's not what's happening. And the idea that, you know, an infield shift is what's the difference between a player hitting a home run and not, I think is a little farcical because if you're going to hit a home run, it doesn't matter where the infielders are. I know it makes you aim a little bit differently. So there's some sort of causal relationship there, but I think it's a very scapegoat thing to be like, we want more runs. We want more home runs. We want more big hitters. Let's make the infielders and outfielders stand in a certain spot. Like, what you're encouraging, if anything, is the greater success of small ball there, right? Like you want there to be more hits in play because home runs aren't affected by where the guys are standing as much as any other hit. So it just feels like a cover up almost 
of the these other rules that as your you know the tweet that you alluded to yeah pitch clock is like almost certainly going to change the strategy of the game and the pace of the game and make it more enjoyable bases being bigger which we didn't say in detail but they're making the bases you know from 15 inches to 18 inches across that's going to be safer for players offensively defensively we're going to have more you know plays at the bag because people are going to be less afraid of collisions like there's going to be more bang bang plays great excitement so you already made two rules that do that now to say that this one is like also doing the same thing this is like you know the just all right like i guess if you're gonna throw it in throw it in but i just don't see it having the same impact i was i'm, I'm very strongly against it going in but i will uh, await a pleasant surprise hopefully in three years time and i and listen i could be leading myself down a path that in a couple months I'll, I'll truly regret. We could be April or May of next year. And I'm thinking, man, taking the shift away was, was dumb. I, like I said, I'm not hundred percent on board with it, but I kind of have to be okay with it because I, I love the game. I want to see it grow. If this is where the, the best baseball minds in major league baseball's front office think it's going, I'll follow along, I guess. Right. Like, Again, Jack and, and Tyler, I think, even mentioned, like, if, if you bring up juice balls, bring in juice balls. Screw it. Like, I, you want to see a ball hit 500 feet? Watch Aaron Judge hit a ball 500 feet. You know what I mean? If you want to do juice balls, fine. The issue with that is they told nobody. They right, brought in right. juice balls and they didn't tell anybody. <laughs> that was the problem. It wasn't the actual equipment change. It was that they pretended it wasn't a thing. <laughs> And so I think this is just baseball trying to figure out what iteration of rule changes can we apply in order to make our game more palatable on the offensive side. And this is a completely different conversation, but the thing that's plagued MLB is the three true outcomes, right? We, you've probably heard this somewhere at some point. What are the three true outcomes? Home runs, walks, and strikeouts. This, over the past decade to 15 years of Major League Baseball, has absolutely plagued the sport because that is ideally what everybody on the team is aiming for. When you go up to the plate, you're aiming for a home run, a walk, or a strikeout. Why would you strike out? It doesn't hurt as bad as a double play. It only is one out. Home run, it puts runs on the board immediately. You'd rather hit uh, four solo home runs than two uh, two RBI doubles uh, and, and walks because on-base percentage gets contracts, baby. Put that on a T-shirt. But it's it's this that they're trying to undo, and this is their first attempt at it. Tyler, what say you? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've been very quiet during this portion. And Jack made some excellent points, but I, I do agree with him in, in most aspects of this is that it, I, don't, I feel like this rule just really doesn't generate offense. And for the sake of time and repeating myself, I mean, I, I just agree with Jack. I think a lot of what he said holds true for me. And I think for – I think comparing yourself, Ryan, to – other fans of baseball, you're a guy who is very invested in the game and who, you know, you enjoy the, the intricacies of baseball. Where football and baseball differ is that highlights, right? And Jack kind of talked about it with home runs, where guys are hitting home runs and that's, that's highlight material. 
um, with football, it's just touchdown points are highlights. And so generating stuff like that, like I really don't think the shift is going to affect it uh, either way. If you get these guys to stay in place, it's really not going to be much different. Yeah, and and I should note before we get too far away from it, the shift is still available. You just can't do the extreme shift. You can't send a guy into shallow right field. You can't put a guy at uh, at you know somewhere between where a traditional second baseman would play and second base. You can still though put a guy adjacent to second base, just on the left side of second base, and still have your two infielders on the right side of the field. They just can't be touching the outfield grass. So there's still an iteration of a shift. I, I wouldn't even run. say that. That's so huh? misleading. That, that's so that's so misleading. That's so farcical. They're like, oh, but you can at least do this. Like, yeah, you know, you're not gonna have footprints on the ground. But that, like, I I don't even know. I feel like the origin of the phrase the shift really, you know, drove up in the last decade or so, where you started to hear more pitchers and batters talk about it, other than just like baseball commentators. Um, and the shift means a certain thing. It means changing the look of your defense to defend against a certain batter and having your shortstop stand like six feet to the left or six feet to the right, for example, though that technically would follow the dictionary definition of shifting. I would not call that baseball shifting outfielders all the time. Take a few steps back, take a few steps forward, but a dynamic change. That's the shift. So I I wouldn't even say like, Oh, they only got rid of some of it. No, they banned what we call the shift, Right. right? Like plain and simple. Yeah. And again, I'm somebody that that views this as like uh, an update to a video game. Call it whatever you want. Right. But like if you're playing Warzone, if you're playing Fortnite, if you're playing whatever. Right. Like you're still going to show up and play the game regardless if they have X, Y or Z added to it. Oh, Thanos is in the middle of the game now. Fine. I'll play it. It's annoying. But like it's it's here. And so I have to deal with it if I want to enjoy this thing. So I think that's kind of where my head goes is like. I have to be okay with it because I want to enjoy this thing. And part of me also wants to not be like the guy who loves baseball from the 1980s and wants that type of baseball to be played forever. Like, I don't want to be a hard O fan. I want to be kind of like a modern MLB fan. That's like adjusts and adapts with the way the game is played. And if this is where it goes, this This, is where it goes. This is your opportunity, Ryan. You're right on so many things, but you're wrong on that last part. It's because you love the game that you should be angry. We're trying to let 21st century (laughs) baseball minds make the game more exciting and more creative and to support that it is okay to be mad. You can love the game more than everyone else and be angry. Don't let, uh, what, what, I almost said the wrong commissioner, Bud Selig. (laughs) He's been gone for a while. (laughs) Rob Manfred. Don't let Rob Manfred, don't let Rob Manfred think, if, if you don't like this rule, then you don't like baseball. It's because you challenge the rule that you're proving you love it. So you need some positive self-talk to remind yourself you're a bigger baseball fan and let that fuel your hate. I'm going to write that on a piece of paper five times every morning. I'm a bigger baseball fan than I believe. Yeah, don't, don't, don't put the Bud Selig part in. That would be confusing. <laughs> and don't let Bud see that. No, no, definitely not. But those are the big changes coming to baseball. Um, important that we have that conversation. I'm certain that this is going to come up in future conversations, um, especially when we look at next baseball season and how it all impacts uh, the way the game is played. Because it changes strategy significantly, um, and maybe maybe uh, we'll we'll drag this conversation back out and let Tyler get his fucking words and advice too, right? <laughs> Tyler is still here for those just listening. 
All right. <laughs> we close the show every week with a segment we call Hang the Banner. It can be celebratory, ironic, a tribute, etc. cetera. Uh, but Tyler, who are you hanging your banner for this week? Well, I want you guys to close your eyes and picture okay. a nice, beautiful day at the beach. The waves crashing. You've got a bunch of money in your pocket. Yep. That's going to be Scott Frost the rest of the football season. And so he... <laughs> he, he I want to be Scott Frost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, it's, it's horrible that he got fired, but he is getting paid so much money to just do nothing. And just to watch football, <laughs> go on vacation... He's been away from his family for how long? He gets to enjoy his vacation. So happy, happy vacation to, to Scott Frost. And no, that's why I think he gets staying. But happy vacation to him. But I, I, I don't want to be him. What do you mean you don't want to be him? You're a legend. million dollars. You're a legend you at two want. different schools. Well, maybe only one school now. One. You're on a beach. <laughs> the waves are crashing around you. Give me Scott Frost. Like you're a legend at one school and you're ironically a legend at the other. Sure. But the, the big thing is you have millions of dollars to do nothing. And that's, the, the bigger thing is college football coaches get recycled so often that in five or six years, he's probably going to get another $70 million contract. The, the brand new head coach of South Dakota state. It's Scott Frost. <laughs> he's going to win one. He's going to win one FCS title. And next thing you know, he's coaching at like Texas tech the next year. Yeah, I could see him coach Mary Harden Baylor. For those who don't know, Mary Harden Baylor, a powerhouse at the division three level. <laughs> Oh, dude, that was good. I had no idea what I was doing on a beach, but man. I, I didn't either, but my <laughs> eyes were closed and I was bought in and then he just ruined it for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jack, who are you hanging your banner for, brother? Uh, my banner goes to NFL coaching, something that we don't realize how much we need until football season rolls around. And good coaching is something that often goes unnoticed. Bad coaching is very easy to spot. We already talked about Nathaniel Hackett uh, to a pretty deep extent earlier. We also hinted a little bit at some of the woes for the Cincinnati Bengals. So shout out to Zach Taylor, who is not having his first problems with uh, coaching decisions, clock management, things like that. Jamar Chase scored a touchdown that didn't get put on the board. Would have set the Bengals up nicely to win the game. Uh, Zach Taylor's decision was not to challenge the play, but to run another play so that the previous one couldn't be challenged. That also was a failed effort to get into the end zone. The Bengals <laughs> lose at home in overtime in a game where they potentially had two or three more touchdowns than they should have had. But in the spirit of rewarding coaches with praise, I actually am going to give a sneaky shout out also to Lovey Smith on the Houston Texans, who, even though the analytics could go one way or another on his coaching decisions, stood by the fact that he played for a tie, which normally is such a horrible thing to think about. But if you're the Houston Texans over the last few years, a tie is worth half of a win. It's a fourth and three situation in overtime with 20 seconds left. He decides to punt the ball and say, I don't want to give the Colts a chance of winning. We're both going down with the ship. They had previously failed on a fourth and three in a similar situation earlier in the game. Sorry, not failed, punted. Uh, they also hadn't scored any points since the start of the third quarter. So he knew that his team maybe wasn't the better one. He knew that they were ice cold on offense. And he figured, why would I throw this game away and lose? Let me get half of a win, which unfortunately, Zach Taylor and Nathaniel Hackett cannot say that they have. Hang the banners, NFL coaches. I have to ask, uh, as a Saints fan, knee-jerk reactions on Dennis Allen. Uh, 
you know what? He is his winning record with the Saints is great. His previous coaching record, not amazing, but I'm hoping that the tutelage of Sean Payton pays off. And, and this team has too talented of a roster for it to hopefully be blown by coaching. But that doesn't always work. See Dallas Cowboys in the 21st century. <laughs> I will say, uh, as we move forward throughout the podcast, uh, just so everybody knows affiliations, Jack obviously is a Saints fan. Uh, Tyler and I, well, Tyler is a free agent. I am a Bears fan. Tyler has no uh, fandom at the moment. Right, Tyler? Stay neutral for the sake of my career. (laughs) You can have your favorite football team north of the border, though, right? Yeah, I'm a Winnipeg Blue Bombers fan. There we go. That's right, baby. They just clinched the other day. I don't know Shout what they out. clinched, but they did it. Playoffs. 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 Great cup season. <laughs> Great cups right around the corner. Uh, but no, I was pretty impressed with uh, the coaching that Matt Eberflus did with the Bears this weekend as well. But that's a conversation for a different day. I hang my banner now for the Royal Majesty, her, the Queen. Uh, more specifically Twitter after they found out the queen had, uh, passed away. Uh, I lost an hour of my life that afternoon, just scrolling through Twitter and seeing how Americans were just lighting up, uh, the country of, of England. And so, uh, hats off, hang a banner, all that stuff for Twitter who just let her have it. Uh, does anybody have a favorite tweet that they saw about the queen? (laughs) That they'd like to share? <laughs> uh, I, I haven't seen enough of the Queen. I still, I'll say, as, as it pertains to the royal family and uh, fairly recent losses, I still can't get over the old Prince Philip memes. They're like, if Prince Philip had a sip of Sprite, he would die on the spot. So, <laughs> you know, like, those are definitely, it's tough for the Queen to top that. But we need the royal family for the memes, absolutely. Oh man, there was there was one that ab- just absolutely stole my my soul from my chest, uh, right out my chest. Uh, it was a radio station in the UK that was playing like house music, you know, just bumping a little beat, bumping a little beat, and then like in the middle of the song, it stops and it says, "Breaking news: uh, news from Buckingham Palace, the Queen has passed away," and then a stop. And then the music picks right back up. Like it was like the drop for the song. It was amazing. I was, I was not laughing. I was cackling uh, at just how absurd that was and how absurd Twitter was at that. As bad as it might be, Twitter at times has moments where we all get together as a society of degenerates hiding behind screens. And it really is a fun place sometimes. <sighs> I think the, the funniest one that I saw was um, one of my one of my teammates showed it to me. And here in Canada, there so there was it was announced on Twitter that the Queen had passed away, and immediately like after this, uh, Canada's great drag show like the it's like RuPaul's Drag Race, uh huh, but it's the Canada equivalent. Okay. They said, "Who's next to wear the crown? Find out tonight." <laughs> immediately after she died, I lost my mind. Oh, <laughs> so oh man! See, this is what I'm talking about. Like, there's just so many great moments on social media after like situations like that, where it's not like 
it was bound to happen. It's not like a national like tragedy. It was like it, it's sad that it happened, but the Queen of England, who was ninety years old, died. That's kind of a big deal globally. But like a tragedy, like I, it's not a tragedy. It was like an inevitability. Like it's super okay, sad okay. that it happened, but there yeah, were so yeah. many people who just took to Twitter or or oh God TikTok and just absolutely lit it up. So uh, hang the banner for the Queen. Hang the banner for degenerate Twitter. And uh, with that, we wrap up episode one of Hanging Banners. We're back next week. Be sure to check out Jack and I on the uh, the podcast's Instagram page this coming Sunday. We're going to do uh, a gambling show every Sunday morning where you can choose to follow our advice or not. Uh, we did one for week one. I would not advise to follow our week one uh, or picks from week one, Jack. I don't know that we did oh, very good. What are you, what are you talking about? Maybe I did. I, I feel like we hit on quite a few things. Am I? Yeah, we did all right. Solo stuff. I put it all together in a parlay, so that's my fault. But don't listen to me. <laughs> listen to Jack. And you can follow us everywhere: Instagram, Twitter, TikTok at Hanging Banners. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. I'm Ryan Sartori. That's Jack Coachman. That's Tyler Wet, and we're getting out of here. See you guys. Okay, great. Thanks a lot for that look in sports, Brian. Yeah. And when we come back, we'll have one final look at weather. Stay tuned.